From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, June 8th. I'm Marco Werman. UN monitors in Syria reach the site of a reported massacre. We'll find out what they saw. And later, the secret thoughts of North Korea's young new leader, at least according to comedian Andy Barowitz. I am really just channeling his thoughts. I would not pretend that I was elected president of North Korea. Neither was he, though. Plus, a food seasoning that reminds immigrants of home, but which home? I don't know where it comes from. All I know is that it's Africa, full stop. Wherever else it comes from, they don't need it. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. United Nations monitors in Syria reached the village of Kubir today. That's the site of the latest reported massacre of civilians. Syrian opposition activists say some 80 people were killed, many of them women and children. The BBC's Paul Danaher is traveling with the UN team. Uh, so UN monitors were stopped, Paul, from entering Kubir yesterday. They were even fired upon. What happened today? Today they got to the village and they saw some appalling things. It was a small hamlet on the top of a hill in a very rural area. There were two houses, both single-story, both made of freeze block, and both holding appalling terrors. In the first one I came to, the inside of the house had been gutted by fire, but the stench of burnt flesh was still hanging in the air. In the second house, it was even worse. A large pool of blood. There were pieces of flesh in amongst the discarded possessions. What we didn't find were bodies of people. They'd all been taken away. What we did find were the bodies of livestock. It seemed the people that went into this village killed everything that moved. Now, the government maintains it wasn't their forces who killed the residents of Kuber, but rather terrorists, and that's been kind of the standard line throughout much of this conflict. Uh, Help us understand what international monitors are hoping to determine by investigating these alleged massacres. I mean, there have been four in the past two weeks. Yeah, and to be honest, investigation is a bit of a loose term in the sense of what they're able to do, because frankly, all they can do is is what we do. They can go to these places, they can document what they see, they can talk to local villagers, and they can write a report. But they don't have a forensic team to carry out an investigation. They don't have a police team to carry out an investigation. To be fair to the UN, they are doing a very difficult and dangerous task, unarmed, in areas where they're not wanted. So the best they can do is basically tell the outside world what they've found and leave the outside world and the United Nations Security Council to draw their conclusions and take their action. Is there any sort of follow-up to these kind of monitoring missions? I mean, do they now talk to Assad? Do they brief him? Yes, they left some people behind when we left uh, to carry on their investigation. They will take the initial conclusions to the authorities. They will ask them to explain what they were doing, what they will be asking them to explain is why there were clearly military tracks on the tarmac outside this village. These were, the UN told me, from either armored personnel carriers or some tanks. So the army were there, and the army are now going to have to explain why they were there and where the bodies are of the people that were butchered. 
And, and what about the people uh, or survivors in Kubir? I mean, once the U.N. monitors leave, what about their safety? Well, that's the problem, isn't it? The, the question is, how honest can you be when you know that the U.N. team are going to leave? To be fair, the people that spoke to us were very honest. They said that it was villages from a nearby Alawite community, basically a militia group who came in and killed these people, and that they had the protection of the army outside. Now, we can't verify that. The army say that's not true. The army say they went in there after the terrorists killed some people, and they then killed the terrorists themselves. But the mere fact that the UN couldn't get in for 24 hours, the fact that there are no bodies there to examine, and that there are army tracks on the side of the road, leads to questioning to the, to the Syrian regime. They have to answer where the bodies have gone, why the army were there, and what they did. The BBC's Paul Danaher speaking with us after visiting the village of Kubir, the scene of the latest massacre reported in Syria. One possible solution to the Syrian crisis that diplomats have been discussing is the so-called Yemen model. That country's longtime dictator, Ali Abdullah Saleh, agreed to step down in February and hand power over to his vice president, Abed Rabo Mansour Hadi. Saleh's resignation came after months of massive protests and violence in Yemen, but in the end, the negotiated solution was relatively peaceful. Jamal Ben-Omar helped broker that transition. He's the U.N. Secretary General's special advisor on Yemen. Mr. Ben-Omar, how did you convince Ali Abdullah Saleh, the most powerful man in Yemen, to step aside? Look, I was the mediator in this conflict, and I managed to bring the parties together, and it ended with an agreement on a detailed roadmap you know, for a peaceful transition. But uh, first, um, uh, both sides, you know, started to see that um, they cannot win militarily, you know, this fight. And um, that's what enabled us to start to talk to both sides about the need first to have a direct face-to-face dialogue in November. And that was against um, some very interesting background. You know, it was in October, the Security Council unanimously adopted the resolution on Yemen there was consensus. Basically, the international community started to see that the deterioration of security in Yemen will have serious implications in terms of peace and security in the region. Um, I think the fact that the international community spoke with one voice, the fact that there was an impartial mediation, which is the United Nations, and with a clear line, which is implementing the Security Council resolution, that's what helped. I've got to say, some of the details you mention in your narrative of Yemen are very similar to what we've seen in the past year in Syria. However, the cost of the conflict in Syria right now is already very high. Do you think the Yemen model could work in Syria? And if not, why not? What's different? We're talking about two different situations. One, um, I have to underline that in Yemen, you know, there was a lot of politics and a history of political life. There was a, a real opposition operating in parliament. Outside of parliament, you know, there was a, a very active civil society, which is very different, you know, from Syria. The uh, second big difference here is that both sides came to realize that they cannot win. They cannot win through military means. And in Yemen, you know, the one thing that's been very helpful also is the personality of the vice president at the time, who's currently the president. You know, he was from day one the consensus candidate. Let, let's talk a moment about what's happened in Yemen since uh, Saleh has departed. Um, the new president, uh, Abid Rabo Mansour Hadi, gets passing grades from Yemeni human rights activist and Nobel laureate 
Tawako Karman, whom we'll hear from in a moment. But she and many others want Hadi to remove former President Saleh's friends and family members from top jobs in the military and security. How is that going? First, security sector reform is on the agenda of this transition. It was part of the deal. The new president already um, appointed a new head of the Air Force. Uh, it led to a reaction and uh, it needed our intervention. But the half-brother of President Saleh was removed and moved to another post. Also, other uh, nephews of President Saleh have moved now from their position. What the president is trying to do is to make sure that the Yemeni army will reflect you know, the composition of Yemeni society uh, and not have just one group or clan uh, have the monopoly over the security forces. Uh, Mr. Ben Omar, we have heard about Mr. Saleh's son, Ahmed, who heads the Republican Guard Forces in Yemen, and Mr. Saleh's nephew, Yahya, who commands the paramilitary Central Security Forces. I mean, we know who they are. Why does the U.N. draft resolution not name names? The uh, resolution basically covered a wide range of um, action that could undermine the government and this transition. And it talks about the implementation of presidential decrees that are being challenged by a number of military officers, quite a number. It talks about the continuing attacks constant attacks on oil and gas and electricity infrastructure. In fact, this cost the government something in the region of $250 million uh, a month, uh, something that would be in the region of $3 billion a year uh, for a very poor country, the poorest country in the Arab world. This is very serious. So it's the combination of all these actions that undermine the government that the resolution tries to uh, address. So obstruction of the implementation of the transition, and it is in these contexts that discussions are even um, underway, you know, to include language that will imply further measures, including under Article 41 of the UN Charter, if these actions uh, continue. The clear message from the Security Council is that, one, the Council speaks with one voice. The Security Council want a peaceful transition. The Security Council wants this model for peaceful change to work. And uh, it is in this context that Security Council is prepared mm. to take further measures. Jamal Ben-Omar is the U.N. Secretary General Special Advisor on Yemen. Good luck and thank you for speaking with us, Mr. Ben-Omar. Thank you. Of course, before Yemen got a peaceful transition, there was the Arab Spring, or as many in Yemen call it, the Jasmine Revolution. Tawakul Karman helped lead the protests against President Saleh. The journalist, activist, and mother of three is now a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and she travels the globe to speak about where Yemen is headed now. Tawakul Karman visited our studios. I asked her if Yemen's new president is up to the job of facing the country's many challenges, from a separatist movement to al-Qaeda terrorism. Not just the new president, it's all Yemeni people who create this revolution and now who are working to create a new country. All of us, one hand, uh, and we want to make a national dialogue that we will discuss all the problems in Yemen. The problem with the economy and the new constitution that must be guarantee the uh, equality and freedom and democracy and uh, accountability and the rule of law. So um, all Yemeni people... They are working for this moment, and it isn't just the responsible of uh, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi. We help him in doing his job, and also he now works with us for achieving all the goals. But, but Yemen is divided. You agree with that? It's y- fractured. Uh, no, 
I don't accept that. Uh, yes, it was divided before the revolution. After the revolution, the revolution made every many people unified. Now there is one umbrella that they are working under it. It's the revolution against the bad regime, the dictator regime, the corruption regime, and also now building the country. Yemen now is more unification than before. Yes, there is problems. There is challenges. Also, Yemen has, you know, many powers like uh, tribes, like, uh, you know, southern movement, like uh, parties, like uh, Houthis, like also now youth. So there is many powers. And all I think this is an advantage to make uh, this country um, strong. But now all these movements, all these powers uh, now thinking about how to create a new country. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the increased use of drones uh, by the United States in Yemen. Uh, On one hand, it seems that a a number of dangerous al-Qaeda leaders have been eliminated, but so have many innocent villagers in the process, too. Of course, the drones might kill the innocent people. And uh, we told uh, America, stop that. It's very important to stop that because it didn't attack Al-Qaeda people. Al-Qaeda people, if we want to fight Al-Qaeda, it's Yemeni people who can fight it. So the solution, not with the drones, the solution is with supporting Yemeni people to fight Al-Qaeda by a good alliance with the new president and with good alliance with people inside these governorates and also by fighting thoughts. And that is the most important thing. The thoughts of violence, it's it's the strategy and the philosophy of Al-Qaeda. When we make our great peaceful revolution, we convince people that the only way to take your rights is peace. And look, we could... Uh, step down the dictator with peaceful way. Don't speak about Al-Qaeda. If you just speak about Al-Qaeda, that means the dictator succeeded when he convinced the West that Yemen equals Al-Qaeda. No, Yemen now equals peace. Um, Yemen now equals uh, dreams on dignity and uh, democracy. So uh, stop talking about Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. There is people now, they are suffering from something most important than Al-Qaeda. They are suffering from poverty. They are suffering from disease. Now we are working in building our country and we need all the international community to work with us for building this country. That's it. Tawakul Karman, the co-winner of the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, dear. You can see and hear Tawakul Karman speaking in our studios about the situation in Syria. The video is at theworld.org. Still ahead on the program, we'll take you to the world's most elevated art gallery on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Charges of racism are overshadowing the start of the Euro 2012 soccer tournament today. The tournament is being hosted jointly by Poland and Ukraine. Both nations are under fire from critics around Europe who say racism is rampant among soccer fans there. Even before the tournament got underway, there was an incident in which black players representing Holland were taunted with monkey chants during a training session. Journalist Andrei Kulikov hosts a political talk show in Kiev called Freedom of Speech. Andrei, this is supposed to be a time of celebration for Ukraine and Poland and soccer in general. What's the mood in Kiev right now? Well, the mood is rather good. We're expecting that the championship will happen. 
The major problem for us is how the Ukrainian national team will play. And here the forecasts are, well, if not gloomy, then far from bright. And no one in Kiev is raising concerns about these charges of racism and and what could potentially grow? Well, many people uh, are concerned about this, but I would call your attention to what you said, charges of racism. I don't think that they are entirely proven. Although, yes, I admit that part of the fans here could be classified as racist, but they are a small minority of the entire amount who watch and love football. Here's another perspective on this. This is from a Dutch former soccer star, Ruud Hulet, who is black. He was asked whether the organizers of the tournament were right to choose Poland and Ukraine to host this tournament. This is a chance for Poland to do something about it because this is a social problem. It's not a football problem. It's a social problem. And from now on, because the world is watching you, you have a possibility to tackle this, take this opportunity. He's talking about Poland, but the same argument holds true for Ukraine. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. But at the same time, I say that such social problems happen not only in Ukraine or Poland. I seem to remember that arguably the highest profile incident in the 2011-12 season in England was in a match between Chelsea and Queen's Park Rangers. England captain John Terry was caught on tape allegedly racially abusing Anton Ferdinand. Mm. Ain't it so? You lived in the United Kingdom, so you know a bit about the hooliganism problems there. Yeah, I know a bit, and I saw myself how the riot police in Croydon had to disperse uh, some people after the England-Portugal match. Now, apparently there's a new rule in effect. Organizers say they've empowered the officials at games to stop the match if there's racist hooliganism in the stands. Do you think fans know about this? I don't think many fans know about this. But the problem, yes, there is a problem. And it is not limited to football stadiums or sports. But what I'm saying is that, unfortunately, this problem is not confined to Ukraine or Poland. As far as I know, when watching or following events in the European Union, it is our common problem. Only, for instance, uh, it arose in some countries earlier than in ours. And you, for instance, had more time to deal with it. You're Ukrainian, Andrei? Well, I am. Yeah, so that's a pretty honest assessment. Journalist Andrei Kulikov is in Kiev anxiously waiting for Euro 2012. Andrei, thank you. Thank you, Marco. When it comes to home cooking, immigrants from countries as far-flung as Nigeria, the Philippines, and Poland share a common ingredient. They all use a condiment called Maggi seasoning, and they all think it belongs to them. Aurora Almendral reports on the worldwide appeal of Maggi. We're in Devine Muragijimane's kitchen in Brooklyn. She's frying onions and chopping cilantro. So we're going to make ugali. It's a thick, pasty starch made with cassava flour. She serves it with fish and a fragrant sauce. This is a popular meal back in Burundi. Among the essential ingredients in Devine's kitchen is a little amber glass bottle of Maggie seasoning. Maggie is a salty brown liquid that's a little like soy sauce, but more intense. Sometimes it makes a difference between food becoming African and not African. When Devine first moved to America... She lived in West Virginia. She says it was impossible to make a proper Burundian meal. Nothing that related to my... Like, there was no money cubes, possible. And the cilantro they used here was crap. 
Years later, she finally found Maggie in a Cincinnati market. The first meal she made was... Beans and rice. Actually, it was beans and rice and meat stew. That was the first dish. Because, oh, it's like, that's such an African, at least Burundian. It's like it reminds me so much of home. Maggie is so much a part of her culture that Devine has always assumed it's African. I don't know where it comes from. I haven't even inquired where it comes from. All I know is that it's African. Full stop. Wherever else it comes from, they don't need it. When I tell her it doesn't come from Africa, she's kind of disappointed. Yeah, my dreams are shattered. It's okay. She can't quite believe it's true. So now I have to wonder, how does African food taste without money? <laughs> how did it taste before Maggie arrived? $150 Devine is not the only one who lays claim to Maggie. Just a subway right away from her house is the Polish GI delicatessen in Manhattan. It's a small store packed with Polish food. On the shelves, next to packets of powdered vanilla, tins of herring, and jars of Polish preserves, owner Grace Iwok stocks Maggie seasoning. Polish people buy this a lot. You have to use always. Maggie is a staple in Polish cooking, but you'll also find the distinctive yellow and red label in Chinese grocery stores, Mexican markets, and German specialty stores. Maggie does actually come from somewhere. <laughs> Maggie seasoning was invented in Switzerland in 1886 by a Swiss German named Julius Maggie. It was one of the first industrial mass-produced foods. It was intended to make soups and stews taste heartier for factory workers who didn't have much money for meat. Maria Christina lives in New York, but she grew up near a Maggie factory in Austria. She was surprised when I told her that Maggie is popular in other countries like the Philippines, where I'm from. I grew up thinking Maggie was a Filipino taste. Really? It has a Filipino taste? To me, yeah. I thought that's where it came from. Wow, I always thought it had a very Austrian-German taste. It's, it's creepy. It's really creepy. I don't know how something like this can actually happen. At Maharlika, a Filipino restaurant in Manhattan's East Village... Maggie gets a place at the table alongside bottles of spicy vinegar. Maharlika plays on Maggie's kitschy cult status back in the Philippines. But people here have an idea why Maggie seems so ubiquitous. It has to do with umami, which is... It's a flavor profile, but it's also a sensation. Topher Chung is a server at Maharlika. Umami is often thought of as the fifth taste, after sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. It was first described in Japan in 1909, and it comes from foods that contain a lot of glutamic acid, like ripe tomatoes, aged cheese, and MSG, which Maggie has a lot of. It's supposed to evoke goodness and just the most raw, natural state of goodness in food. Maggie has enough of its own flavor, so you know it when you taste it. But it's Maggie's umami that makes food taste more Polish more Burundian, more Mexican, or more Filipino. And that's probably why immigrants from those countries and many others have come to think of Maggie's seasoning as the flavor of home. For The World, I'm Aurora Almendral in New York. Aurora's story was produced with the help of Feet in Two Worlds. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, France's new first couple, Keep It Simple. Right now, they live in a two-bedroom rental in an unchic part of Paris. I mean, she likes to ride her bike. And later, Europe's fascination with Detroit. This city fell, but they're actually trying to do something about it. And that, I think, Europe could learn, not being... Sometimes we maybe be a bit spoiled, you know? <laughs> PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. I follow a lot of Twitter feeds for this job, and the one we're about to talk about is one of my favorites. It's written by political comedian Andy Barowitz, but he plays the role of North Korea's young leader, Kim Jong-un, or as Barowitz calls him on Twitter, Kim Jong-number-un. We don't know much about Kim, neither does Andy Barowitz. Let me make it clear what my relationship is with, with Kim Jong-un, because I don't want to exaggerate it. Um, I am really just channeling his thoughts. I would not pretend that I was elected president of North Korea. Of course, <laughs> right. neither, neither, neither was he, though. So, I mean, we're sort of talking about <laughs> level playing field. Um, what it was was, as a comedian, Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, was such a gift. I mean, I my Borowitz Report book in 2004, I did a, a blog of Kim Jong-il. And when he passed, it was such a loss for comedians because we we loved him. And I wanted to give something back. So uh, <laughs> Kim Jong-un comes on the scene. And I thought, well, let's just get this ball rolling. And so in January, I set up this um, Kim Jong-number-un Twitter feed. And, and now it has something like 120,000 followers. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I, I confess I, I am one of them. Um, <laughs> give us, give us a, one of the tweets uh, that you wrote. It's actually a tweet that came out a, a month or so ago about the Apple Store because I think it really sums up the really neat sense of humor that it delivers through. Well, could you could you read it? Because it'll sound so much more official coming from <laughs> with your voice as opposed to mine. If an Apple store opened in North Korea, there would be rioting because people would think they were selling apples. Yes. Well, you see, this is a perfect example of the feed because it combines sort of our stereotypical view of North Korea, which our only view of North Korea is stereotypical because we don't really know what's going on there. Mm. But it combines that with, I would say, extreme bad taste, which is, I think, another sort of uh, signature of the entire feed. With 100,000 plus followers of Kim Jong number un, is the humor working as kind of a sugar-coated pill to raise Americans' awareness of these big topics? Well, I'm always nervous whenever anybody talks about the stuff that I do as, as performing any kind of public good. I'm always <laughs> nervous about that because it's far from my intention. I'm really just trying to get a laugh. But, you know, the fact is whenever you do anything that gets a laugh, the only reason it gets a laugh is because there's some kernel of truth in it. And so even though I'm never trying to improve the world in any way, I, I really think I'm more part of uh, the problem. I think that's my role. I think that um, people are certainly more aware of North Korea as a result. This is the most prominent North Korean Twitter feed in the world by virtue of the fact that North Korea doesn't allow people to be on Twitter. So this is as close as we're going to get into a, a window into the Kim regime. Now, sometimes, Andy Barowitz, uh, the Barowitz report seems to morph with uh, Kim Jong number un. Like you're, <laughs> you're going after now you seem to be kind of pitting Kim Jong un against Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. That's right. Kim will often retweet links to the Borowitz Report. And 
I think the number one retweeted tweet about the Walker recall was actually from the president of North Korea. And, and tell us what that, that one was that I don't have it well, in I front think, of me. I think in a word he said, I sent Scott Walker my best wishes uh, from one brutal dictator to another. It was just very simple. It wasn't clever or anything. It was just really kind of a statement of his, I guess, commonality, his, his sense of collegiality with Scott Walker. He felt that Scott Walker should have given him some credit for some programs that are a lot like the programs in North Korea, Such for example. Um, well, cutting lunches for school children. Mm. Anything that involves eliminating food, Kim Jong, number one, feels that he has some authorial intellectual property rights on that because it's a big specialty of his. Yeah, it, Yo, Scott Walker, congrats, uh, Kim Jong, number one, writes, I'm always stoked when a leader who deprives children of food stays in power. That's right. The famine theme is big. Yeah, the Apple Store was uh, touched on that, too. I mean, the fact is there's a, a rotating menu. I guess I shouldn't use that word, but um, <laughs> list of things that you can joke about because we know so little about them. Nuclear weapons. Of course, that was a real low watermark for the new regime when right. that rocket failed. And mm-hmm. I think he tweeted obliquely about it. He said, um, I swear this is the first time this has ever happened. To me. <laughs> I think that's what he said. He was just a little bit a little humiliated. Andy Barowitz, he's in charge of the Barowitz Report and the Twitter account Kim Jong Number Un, which we can link to at theworld.org. His latest book is an unexpected twist about his experience with an obstructed bowel. You like the light topics, don't you? <laughs> now that is a funny book. <laughs> Andy Barowitz, thank you. Thanks, Marco. One world figure who actually is on Twitter is the new first lady of France, Valérie Trierweiler. Her account has more than 70,000 followers. Tria Weiler isn't your typical first lady. For one thing, she and President François Hollande are not married. Also, Tria Weiler is a journalist who plans to continue her own career. She'd had covered politics for a long time, but her bosses at the weekly magazine Paris Match say she'll now cover arts and culture instead to avoid conflicts of interest. Her first article on The New Beat is a review of a book about Eleanor Roosevelt, who herself wrote a newspaper column while she was first lady. Will you look at that, Tria Vila writes in her review. A first lady who is also a journalist isn't a novelty. New York Times correspondent Elaine Cholino is based in Paris. She says Tria Vila has come in for criticism about her choice to continue as a journalist. There is a perceived conflict of interest because even if she writes about culture and the arts, she can be perceived to use her influence to change the president's mind. There is a ministry of culture in France. We do not have such a ministry in the United States. And she is a journalist who has been a journalist working for 22 years. She says she has to earn a living because she's supporting her three teenage sons. And that is admirable. But how to reconcile that with earning her living as a journalist is going to be extremely difficult. Now, there are also other aspects of the relationship between uh, Trierweiler and Hollande that are less unconventional. They're not married, for one thing. We alluded to that earlier. Does being domestic partners rather than Mr. and Mrs. work for a French first couple? There's not really a problem in France because the French really don't care very much about private morality. I mean, I find it very interesting that nobody during the entire French presidential campaign asked François Hollande, do you believe in the institution of marriage? Mm. He was the partner of Seglin Royale, who ran for president in 2007, and he's the father of their four children. They were never married. He is not married to Valerie Trierweiler either, and it could pose problems if 
not inside France, is it going to pose problems when they go to the Vatican or they go to Saudi Arabia or they go to Egypt or even, I would argue, even if they go to Blair House in Washington, D.C.? Now, uh, what about the kind of public morality? Because the the previous French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, and his wife, Carla Bruni, embraced celebrity. They were associated with bling. And the French public kind of found that distasteful. With Trierweiler being a reporter for Paris Match, is France kind of getting a continuation of a celebritized presidential office? France is not getting a continuation of a celebritized presidency because Hollande and Trierweiler are very, very different from Sarkozy and Carla Bruni. They live very modestly. Right now, they live in a two-bedroom, $4,000 a month rental in an unchic part of Paris. She likes to ride her bike. He has been dubbed Mr. Normal because he promised to be a normal president. You know, he wants to take trains instead of planes. So you're going to see a different style. And what I find the most interesting is they're trying to have it all. They're trying to stay true to their own values, that they don't have to be married. They don't have to live in the Elysee Palace. They don't have to change their lifestyles. But once you become a head of state and a head of state of a very important country, you have to change. It's not normal to be the president of France. You have to embrace all sorts of protocol and pomp and state dinners. And, and that requires growing up to a certain extent. Elaine Cholino is a Paris-based correspondent for The New York Times. Her most recent book is La Séduction, How the French Play the Game of Life. Elaine, thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. There's an unusual art gallery we want to tell you about in today's GeoQuiz. It's the highest altitude art gallery anywhere. No, it's not on the summit of Mount Everest, but it's not too far from it either. This gallery houses a photo exhibit inside a large tent that sits at 17,600 feet. So it's not easy to get there. In fact, gallery patrons are a pretty hardy lot, mostly mountain climbers and Sherpas. Here's one last clue. The gallery is in Nepal, in the Himalayas, and it looks out on the southeast ridge of the world's highest peak. Can you pinpoint its exact location? We'll be back with the answer and more on the photo exhibit in a few minutes. The French aristocrat Alexis de Tocqueville, that keen observer of America's young democracy, visited Detroit in 1831. He called it the utmost limits of European civilization. Strangely, perhaps, Europeans are still fascinated by Detroit. Reporter Jake Warga visited the Motor City recently to find out why. Hi, my name is Nora. I'm from France, and I direct documentaries. Nora is spending a year in Detroit working on a documentary about it. In no time, she fell in love with the city, as evident by the name of her blog. Uh, the name of my blog is um, DetroitJeTem.com. It means in French, uh, Detroit, I love you. The French might have a particular fondness for Detroit. It was founded by a French explorer, and it is a French name, after all. Yeah, in French we say Detroit. It actually comes from where when you have two rivers that meet, in French we, we call it Detroit, Detroit. It was founded by a French guy, you know, Cadillac. I asked Nora if Detroit was a metaphor, what would it be? (laughs) 
Detroit is a metaphor for a lot of things. I like to say it's a metaphor for hope, though, because this is a people more than anything else. Um, they believe in their city. Another way people from overseas come to Detroit is by way of academics. Oh, my name is Mireille Rodier. Um, I teach at the University of Michigan in the College of Architect, the Tubman College of Architecture and Urban Design. Originally from Nice, France, Mireille now teaches in Michigan. Detroit has become a convenient laboratory for academics. Well, as a European, it's definitely coming to America to see what doesn't exist in Europe. Some people say that this is its own thing, that um, it doesn't exist anywhere else. Some other people say that it's exactly what the future looks like everywhere. I've come to see Detroit as a working metaphor of the 20th century, of the American dream. Its growth was phenomenal, as was its decline, and abandoned buildings are now playgrounds for urban explorers, ravers, artists, and tourists. This is a, a pile of salt. We have a salt mine in Detroit. A good way to see how a foreigner sees the city is through a photographer's eyes, and Detroit is a very popular place for Europeans to come and take pictures. Je m'appelle Romain Blancard, je suis français d'origine. My name is Romain Blancard, I am a photographer in Detroit, Michigan. Detroit free press photographer Roman liked the city so much he stayed. I think Detroit is America, but Detroit is, is a lot more because Detroit is a lot of other places that people turn to it as an example of what good and what bad can happen to a place. But the same thing is happening all over the country and, uh, and in Europe. Yeah, we're America, but we are the world. <laughs> what has happened to Detroit and where Detroit is today is, I think, really fascinating to people who have not experienced it. So largely we see people coming to see it, to think about it, to write about it, to photograph it. I wanted to talk with a native Detroiter. Bradley McCollum is a local historian and manager of the newly refurbished 1924 downtown book Cadillac Hotel which was once abandoned but, yet again, has become a social center of the city. He hosts many visitors. Detroit is a, you know, is a metaphor for capitalism at its absolute worst. It absolutely raped the city. It created these mindless sort of brain-deadening jobs. It took, 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 took. It gave back, it, you know, gave back art here and that. But the minute that they felt... You know, the minute that industry felt they could get a cheaper deal somewhere else, they up and left. My name is Maria Rudstensagen. I'm from Oslo, Norway. Yeah, so I came to the United States basically to see Detroit. One of the best places to find foreigners is in a hostel. Open recently, Hostel Detroit is a two-story house with a great view of the very iconic and very abandoned Michigan Central train station. But the station was born at the same time as Ford's cars, and as we know in America, cars won the race to move people. It's a first stop for many visitors and their cameras, including me. And I felt somewhat guilty when I pulled up in my rental car, a Chevy Volt, an electric car. Back at the hostel, Maria tells me she didn't rent a car for the Motor City when she arrived, but got a lift instead from someone she met on the plane. I got driven to this hostel because I arrived in the middle of the night by like, the former mayor of Detroit. He just, I was just sitting quite close and he found out he was living close to the hostel and it was, it was people were just very helpful, yeah. And I asked her why on her first trip to the U.S. she's visiting Detroit and not, say, New York. New York you can go when you're old, when you're 50 and can afford it, kind of. And it will be still the same. Detroit, I came now because of a lot of coincidences. I heard what was going on here. I asked what, if any, lessons Maria might take back with her to Europe. This city fell, but they're actually trying to do something about it, and people support their community, and that I think Europe could learn, not being... Sometimes we maybe be a bit spoiled, you know? <laughs> 
for the world. I'm Jake Warga in Detroit, America. If you had one shot, one opportunity. Jake's stunning snapshots of Detroit's decay and rebirth are at theworld.org. Now, before we get to the break, here's an update on our profile yesterday of Mexican-born jockey Mario Gutierrez. He's the guy who guided I'll Have Another to the brink of triple crown glory. His mentor, Glenn Todd, described the jockey's meteoric rise. It's a great story. He came from humble beginnings to Hastings Park in Vancouver, and now he's going for the triple crown. It's an unbelievable story. It's Hollywood. Well, there is no Hollywood ending. Today, I'll Have Another was scratched from the Belmont Stakes with a swollen tendon. So jockey Mario Gutierrez won't have another. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For our GeoQuiz today, we asked where on earth you'd find the planet's highest art gallery. Well, here now with the answer is a gallery's curator, you could say. David Brashears is executive director of Glacier Works, and he's been to this place in the Himalayas where the gallery is located. Where is it, first off? It's on the glacier, the Kumbu Glacier at 17,600 feet, right at the base of Everest where all the climbers, uh, 750 climbers, were gathered this year. Uh, for their ascents of Everest. So the South Base Camp in Nepal, that's the answer to the GeoQuiz today, the South Base Camp to Mount Everest. So tell us what you see when you arrive in this gallery. Well, the first thing is you have to hike eight or nine days to get there from the airstrip at Lukla at 9,200 feet. Then you pass through four or 500 of the 700 tents arrayed on Base Camp, and you come to a very, very large tent, one of the biggest tents at Base Camp, a brown and gray tent, and inside, on all four walls, you see panoramic photos of glaciers throughout the greater Himalayan region. So you're getting kind of before and after shots of what the glaciers used to look like and what they look like today. What's the big difference and, and what accounts well, for it? Well, when you walk right in the tent, and it's really quite impressive, to the left on a very long wall, you would see a panoramic photograph showing a 1921 black and white photo of the West Rongbuk Glacier on the north side of Everest in Tibet, which is only five miles away, and right underneath it you would see the same size color panoramic photograph taken in 2008, and what you see is an incredible and very dramatic uh, loss of mass, vertical loss of mass of, of ice. Remind us briefly why these glaciers in this part of the world are under threat. We could say some of it's from climate change. Certainly some of it is in the future. The melt rate will be more um, accelerated because of more carbon in the air and, and warming and climate change. But really, I'm more interested in what this water means to the people downstream. It must mean a lot because it's where their drinking water comes from. It's where yeah. their cooking and bathing water comes from. Yes, and if we look at the Tibetan Plateau, which is an area as large as Western Europe and at an average elevation of 15,000 feet with over 40,000 glaciers, Several things happen when we look at these glaciers. First of all, their response to climate change is very rapid. We then look at the melt rate of the glaciers and extrapolate this into the future with a warmer planet and say to ourselves, if there's less ice and less water flowing out of these glaciers, what does it mean to these very important rivers that provide water 
to, as you mentioned, well, either billions or hundreds of millions of people downstream. You mentioned all these people who have been trying to summit Everest this year. Are they passing through this gallery at base camp and looking at the photographs? I mean, I've seen these pictures of long lines of people trying to get to the summit this year. It's extraordinary. Are they learning anything? We were extremely pleased. Uh, Almost every person who was at base camp uh, made a visit. But equally important to us was signed into our visitor's log were more than a 1,000 trekkers. Some of them even told us they made a trek further than they had expected to come up and see the exhibit. Mm. And most of the response is, this is extraordinary that this exhibit is sitting here at 17,600 feet, and it's extraordinarily relevant. We're talking about the glaciers we're standing on, the glaciers that are melting, the glaciers that do supply crucial perennial water flow to some of the most important rivers in Asia. You've climbed Everest, uh, what, at least eight times, summited five times? I've been on the mountain 13 times, and I have reached the summit five times. I mean, I'd be curious to know, David, whether you think uh, there are dots that need connecting between all these international climbing enthusiasts and the water problems you're trying to highlight in the Himalayan mountain range. Uh, they're climbing. I think it would be really wonderful to think that because people are in the mountains in this beautiful place and climbing on this ice that is melting that it would make them more aware, and not even necessarily to take action, but just to be more informed about your world. So I'm not sure how much we were there to change people's minds who were on the mountain, but we were there to use this exhibit at base camp as a way to tell a story to the, uh, uh, the larger public and to get their attention. David Brashear is director of Glacier Works. The exhibit at Everest Base Camp is called Rivers of Ice, Vanishing Glaciers of the Greater Himalaya. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. You can see the before and after pictures of the West Rongbuk Glacier at theworld.org. Finally today, a song for peace. In French, this tune is called Le Monde pour la Paix, or The World for Peace. It was recorded by several musicians from Mali. The West African nation has experienced violence recently, with a rebellion in the north and a military coup in the south. Given all that, you can understand why musicians there are singing out against war. And in a country like Mali, where talented musicians are one of its great natural resources, there are some heavy hitters on the song. Haira Arbi is on lead vocals, Vieux Farcature is on guitar, and the great Malian lute player Baseku Kuyate also took part. The project was sparked by the group Jukonte and the Mali All-Stars. Now, Jukonte is in fact Joe Conti, an American from Northern California, A few years ago, he discovered the seductive sounds of Mali's distinctive blues, and he fell in love with the music. Since then, Jiconte has traveled to Mali and its capital, Bamako, several times to dig in deeper to the music. In fact, he and his band, the Mali All-Stars, were there in March to make a new album. That's when the military coup went down in Bamako. In the north, rebels continued their offensive, and Mali was thrown into uncertainty. Jiconte was inspired to work with Malian musicians to write a song for peace. Their plea is simple. We want, they sing, for all our ancestors to come together for peace, for a better world, 
for hope in Mali. You can hear the full song, Le Monde pour la Paix, and see behind-the-scenes video from the recording sessions in Bamako. That's all at theworld.org. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. Pour la paix, donc allez, on y va. On va se donner là, mais on dépose les armes, on fait tout. C'est la paix, on fait la fête. For peace. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.